Welcome to Rhyme and Reason, hosted by Dr. Barry. Today, Barry welcomes addiction professional Mark Cantor. And now, here's Dr. Barry Ryman. I'm, I'm jamming out, Jason. Are you jamming out? Beats. It, it's some good beats. So, <clears throat> to, to all my faithful viewers, all two or three of them, um, you're going to notice that my co-host today, who's normally the Zachary Elliott, um, has taken a little hiatus just for this week. He had some stuff going on for work. Uh, you know, he does alumni stuff at Recovery Unplugged, and <clears throat> he was a little busy today and uh, gave us a little notice. And and Jason Cabello, who, boy, he's been with, how long have you been with Recovery Unplugged now? Um, next week, it'll be five years. I wow. Started, so. started as a tech. We started as a client six years ago. And then it, uh, it started as a tech five years ago. I love it. So what Jason does now, I mean, he does a lot of stuff, but he is also a co-host on another podcast called Toxicology. And so this is kind of like a shameless plug for toxicology on the Rhyme and Reason podcast. But if you want to tell our viewers a little bit about toxicology and what you guys do on that side. Yeah, man. So toxicology, we air um, 8 p.m. 8 p.m. Eastern every Thursday night right here on Recovery Unplugged, uh, Facebook Live, LinkedIn, YouTube, wherever wherever you're watching this, that's where, where we, we appear on Thursday nights. And my mom says she loves toxicology. She's our, our number one fan. And um, so, you know, it, it, it's much like this. Uh, Joseph Gerardo is my my the host. I am the co-host. And, you know, we, we talk about all things addiction recovery and mental health. And we try to keep it a little bit lighthearted. Um, but we do talk about some serious stuff. So if you haven't watched, tune in and find out for yourself. We got the... I we have Recovery Unplugged's very own Christine Gregorio on this Thursday night. So she oh, is man. a favorite of clients, of staff, who she's been with us for, for a long, long, you know, Christine's great. So I think it's, you're going to have a lot of Yankees talk um, yeah, on the podcast on Thursday night. And the Yankees are doing pretty good. I'm not a huge baseball fan. I'm more of a basketball and football kind of guy. Yeah. But, you know, I follow. I, I got to keep up with Christine. So every time I'm in Lake Worth, you know, I have stuff to talk about with her. And so I think that's going to be great. I know a few weeks ago you guys had on a really interesting guest. It was Doc McGee. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah Doc, major music manager. Um, is that a pretty good description of him? He's out yeah. in Nashville. Yeah, well, he moved back to Florida, um, but you know he had he had his business running out of Nashville, out of LA. But he discovered and managed bands like Bon Jovi, Motley Crue. Um, he still manages Kiss, so he he's been in it for you know for decades and decades, and has seen it all. And if you've read any of you know the the Dirt or even seen the the Dirt biopic, um, he was in he was depicted in there. Uh, Nikki Six writes a lot about him in the Heroin Diaries, and um, he, yeah, he, he's seen a lot of stuff. So it was it was a really interesting, really interesting interview. Yeah, I, I caught most of that. I want to welcome Paula from DC. Um, she is a loyal listener. She tunes in pretty much every week. 
Um, Paula is, wow, you know, Jason, and, and not to throw Paula under the bus or anything, but let's just say I got to meet her entire family um, at a little sit down to, uh, you know, get her life on track. And oh, I'm proud. Wow. <laughs> and I, I, yeah, I flew to DC for this one. And I'm proud to say that boy, does she ever have her life on track. So a shout out to Paula. That's, That's really, yep. Um, how, how long ago was this? This was about, um, and Paula can type in if I'm wrong, but has to be a little over a year ago, I would say. Wow. Uh, Fantastic. I know we were still wearing masks, so it was definitely during, uh, definitely during you know COVID, but not to the point where, you know, airlines weren't working or anything like that. Right, that's so. got to be great for you to see, man. Because I know you know, I know Barry. Barry does a lot of work getting people into treatment. You know, I, I've known Barry from from the rooms um, before before he started working at Unplugged. And, you know, we know a lot of the same people. We would go a lot to a lot of the same meetings. I didn't even realize that you were an addiction professional when I met you because you in your everyday life, you know, you're active in your recovery and other people's recovery. I know you sponsor a lot of guys in, uh, you know, in, in 12 step. And this is just, you know, I don't think you talk about that. Don't talk about that a lot on here. But, you know, even even when, once you uh, once you hang your hat up for the day from your professional career now you're doing it and you're you do the same thing in, in your private life so you just you just give and give and give it's a lot of it's a lot of giving um but you know what's the oldest saying in, in recovery you can't keep what you have unless you give it away so right. um you know i try to live my life in a manner you know that is fulfilling um and and you know i i, I do spend the majority of my waking hours helping others um but on the selfish side you know, every time I help somebody else, it helps me. Yeah, and and I'm sure you could relate to that because you've had years of giving and helping too. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe not as much in the spotlight, you know, but behind the scenes. And and when we help others, we help ourselves, and and then the people that we do help then go on to help others. It's kind of yeah. like contagious. Yeah, because you know, you know, at least for me, speaking for myself, when when I was <clears throat> in need of help, and I was in need of help for many many years for for decades before I was willing to accept it, you know, and I found these people who I knew would be there when I was ready and kept them around. You know what I mean? Even though I wasn't ready, I would go to meetings and, and keep these people close by. Cause I knew one day, you know, I, I especially the way that I used, I, it wasn't sustainable. I was either going to die or need these people's help at some time. So, you know, I plugged in with the right people and made sure to, uh, to keep close. Well, I'm, I'm glad you did. And, and, you know, we were talking a, a minute or two ago about Paula and that little sit down that I had with her family and, you know, the, the dynamics of that, a, she had no idea I was coming. Okay. So these things are commonly referred to for our, our listeners who may not be, you know, so educated in the addiction realm, but it's an intervention. And I don't think there could be a more perfect segue for, you know, the guest that we're having on today, Mark Canner, who is an interventionist. Um, you know, he himself is in recovery. He first found recovery in 2004. He was being treated for prescription abuse and addiction. And in 2014, um, he started to train in the realm of interventionist. Um, he became a certified intervention professional that same year. 
He later founded South Florida Intervention and wrote the book, How to Do an Intervention, a step-by-step guide to parents. Funny enough, um, that book sits in my car. Uh, I want to tell you it's for everybody who comes into my passenger seat and wants to read it. But one day, Mark and I were having lunch, and he gave me the book, and I popped it in my car, and then it's kind of stayed there. So anybody who does come in my car gets very well acquainted with Mark's book and how to do interventions. Um, anyways, he's currently a member of the National Association for Treatment Providers, otherwise known as NATAP, and the Association of Intervention Professionals. So let's bring Mark on. Let's learn, learn some important uh, or, or the best routes of action for helping you or your loved ones. Hi, good afternoon, I suppose. Th- thanks for that introduction. Mark, I hope you're not mad that your book is still sitting in my car, but it, it is a daily reminder of your face. And I appreciate it. For whatever, re- <laughs> whatever reason, it's become my comfort go-to thing in my car. If I'm at a red light, you know, I'll pick up the book. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm about halfway through it. Now that that you know, like that, that's great, and I and I really just hope that you have a lot of people in your car, so it's getting exposure, and I, you know, I appreciate that. I and I'm impressed that that's your go-to at a red light because I just had to. Um, I'm actually uh, about 36 hours clean off TikTok, uh, so uh, yeah, so yeah, I'm going through it right now. Going through. How that. do you feel? Um, you know, I feel okay. Um, you know, but but it, yeah, I was at default. I would sit at a traffic light and I would TikTok. You know, I'd be in the bathroom, I'd be TikToking, I'd be brushing my teeth, I'd be TikToking. And I think the uh, you know the wiggle song that, that now people are doing on TikTok. Um, it, it was, I think it was this British guy. It says, uh, "I wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. My money don't jiggle. It folds six foot two and all that." And I like, I just became obsessed with that and I, I realized I'm standing in the bathroom just watching video video after people doing the stance about the compact and I'm like I gotta get rid of it. So sorry are you in are you at the uni- the the urinal doing a little wiggle wiggle wiggle? Yeah oh yeah 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 yes the little wiggle wiggle yes yes so how many not to transition out of this subject but I mean how many yeah. uh, how many hours a day do you think you were spending a day on, on TikTok? Um, you, you know, um, maybe it was an hour. I mean, it could have been a minute here, a minute there, but, right. you know, but certainly that, you know, there's that point in the day where you just kind of, you get tired and you take a break or, you know, I, I, I travel a lot. So I'd be sitting in airports with my, my, my beats on and watching TikTok videos. I'm really into aviation. And so I got a lot of aviation videos, which were good. And I, I like to watch, you know, I actually do, do learn a lot from TikTok, a lot of, a lot of history, a lot of, you know, just a lot, a lot, of, a lot of useless information that, that I really love. Um, but, you know, I, I thought I think it was like I need to take a break. It's, it's interesting, though, because with Facebook, when I'm scrolling through Facebook, I, I start to feel depressed. I literally feel a chemical change in my body and I start to feel depressed. And, and cause I think with, with Facebook, I'm comparing myself to everybody else's life. Right. Mm-hmm. But on TikTok, I don't, I don't know these people. So I, I, you know, I don't have that. 
I don't have that dog in the fight. So it was, so it was better, but, but I think I need a break from all of it for a little while. So <laughs> funny that you, funny that you bring this up and I'm putting in the private chat right now. Uh, let's see. Okay. Uh, I have had TikTok for a while and, but more so just to kind of watch. And so mm -hmm. I have, I have two daughters that are 10 and eight that mm -hmm. are pretty much obsessed with TikTok. They're obsessed with, uh, there's Zoomerang and Likey and all these different platforms now that kind of imitate TikTok. So, so just, I've, never, uh, I've never heard of those. Okay. So just like a, a week or two ago, uh, I was with my girls and we were in Target. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> we specifically went there to get them a toy. Okay. Yeah. It's just, you know, eventually they ask so many fucking times that you just cave and right. targets like five minutes away. And I just said, all right, we're going to, we're going to go get a toy. And so we're in the toy aisles and, and there's not just a toy aisle. There's aisles and aisles of, and I'm standing there and I'm watching this woman who had about four or five kids. She was Orthodox and mm -hmm. Uh, I'm like watching my kids and then I'm watching her drove of kids go by and every one of her kids were picking up different items off the shelves. And the mom was like, put that back. No, put that down. We have to go. No. And I'm like, this could be a TikTok." Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I gathered the troops in the toy aisle and within three minutes, I put my second TikTok ever up and posted it. Uh, yeah. Joey, Joey Carazana, um, saw my TikTok. So, uh, Greg, uh, the producer, I went ahead and put my TikTok handle in the, in the private chat. If you want to post that, I think we did a decent job. Did, did, did that go viral or, uh, let's, let me, let me see the, the amount of views. Uh, we've had 55 views. <laughs> so 55 views for me. That's viral. That's viral. But I only have. 13 followers. Okay. I'm not a big TikTok person. Um, I got good yes. amount of, I have good amount of followers on LinkedIn and Facebook. I just haven't approached the whole TikTok realm, but mm -hmm. you know, 13 followers and 55 views, I think is a decent amount of views per the amount of followers I have, but it could have been, I don't know if TikTok counts. If I've watched it 65 times, if that adds to the views, I'm not sure. No, it, it, it's, um, it's for each person, each, each, uh, each person who looks, you'll get a, you'll get a, a separate view. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, um, thank you to Greg who, who posted that link. Um, we're going to actually get into talking more than just TikTok, but on this show, Mark, just here where we go all over the place. It's just a very candid conversation. I'd really like to highlight, you know, the work you do, but before we get to that, I, I want to know a little bit more about your story. I mean, I know about your story and, and it's an mm -hmm. interesting one, but you know, the viewers obviously don't, Jason doesn't. So if you I could know, just yeah. kind of share, you know, just a little bit about your background, um, how you got introduced to recovery, what did your life look like back then? And then if somebody like you came in your life, would you have listened to that person when it came time to get help? That's a, that's a, that's a very good question. You know, so, um, you know, my story is, I, I don't even want to say different in any way. I guess just the, the time frame may be different. I didn't pick up my first drink or, drink or drug till I was 21. 
I, um, you know, I grew up in a family uh, on Long Island, a conservative family, and, and I think the message we always got from our parents, my sister and I, is we just don't do drugs, we don't drink. I never saw my parents drink. Uh, it was just, they, they were just like something we didn't do. So I think the idea that I'm going to pick up a drink or, or a drug is just so out of the question for me growing up that I don't even think about it, you know, and, but I, but you know, I spent the first 21 years of my life on and off being horribly uncomfortable in my own skin with, with no relief. It's like, you know, my skin's getting tighter and tighter. And then when I was in college, I was prescribed Ritalin uh, for, for my ADD. And, um, and you, well, that's not a drug because that's prescribed, right? And, you know, I, I remember the first night I took it. And I, and I think in, in my in my being somewhere, I knew that this was so good. This is that I, I had been looking for this my whole entire life. I mean, it literally did everything for me that people talk about the first drink. You know, that things go from black and white to color. I'm funny. I'm taller. I'm more built. The girls like me more. All those things. And um, and. I took it, you know, pretty much as prescribed for years. Um, there was even a, a, a year or two when I was working in New York that I took nothing. I just, I, and I think I was like just in survival mode. I was living on my own. I was commuting. I was commuting between DC and New York. I was commuting between Long Island and New York. And, and I didn't use anything. Um, and, um, but, I, you know, and a lot of my isms were there. And, uh, and then when I, I got engaged and moved to DC to move back in with, to move in with my wife. I think for me, there was a sudden feeling of, well, I'm, I'm back. I'm, I'm at home now. There's somebody to take care of me or, or, you know, I don't have to be, I'm not in survival mode anymore. And I immediately went back to using Ritalin and then Adderall and then drinking. And, and you know, by the time it was done, it all, you know, it all uh, adds up. You know, what we say is, you know, first slowly, then quickly. And that, and that was exactly what happened for me. I mean, there was, there, was a, there was a long time, you know, even in my adult life that I hadn't crossed over that invisible line in the sand where my wife and I had gone on long vacations and I didn't, wasn't something I had to worry about. But in the end, you know, we, were in, we were in Europe visiting my wife's parents in, in 2003, which was like coming to the end for me. And, and I ran out of pills and I made it up an excuse for us to fly home early uh, because what, what am I going to do? You know, um, you know, I'm out, I'm out of pills um, and I drank every day, but I drank at night. And, and also food was a big thing for me. I mean, that's probably my original drug of choice. I come from a fat family. Um, we didn't drink. But you should see us on a cruise at the buffet, right? I mean, <laughs> so so by the time I got to treatment, I was I was a hundred pounds overweight because uh, there was just so much about food in my family. It was just such center all the time. So I think you. Uh, you I don't know what just happened. I'm a, is that me? What just that mean? No, I think you you look all right. Was it a light change or something? I think it might be Mark's mic picking up us talking and, and echoing. Interesting. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna sit back a little bit. I, I think you bring up some some good stuff here that and, and I, I'm sure Jason can, you know, has heard this before, but 
you know, when we look at addiction, okay, addiction is not about a particular substance, okay, and and we look back at our history, right? And, and I've learned this through going through the twelve steps and taking that inventory and looking at behaviors and things that were going on in my life way before I ever picked up a substance. It really doesn't matter what that substance is. It is unmanageability with something that we try to use to try to change the way we feel. And it right. doesn't matter if it's food. It doesn't matter if it's Ritalin, Adderall, cocaine, alcohol. It doesn't matter if it's sex. It doesn't matter if it's work. It doesn't matter. Anything done to excess typically isn't usually a good thing. Right. 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 And, right. And for people who have this gene, it comes out. Whether it's you know through XYZ substance or XYZ person, because we got person can become our addiction. And right. you know, I think it's telling that you were on this European vacation with your family and you ran out. Like, I mean, you're a rookie. Like, I don't I would not have run out. You know, <laughs> if I'm taking a trip to another country, I'm going fucking stocked. You know, there. Yeah, oh, and I was. I I was. I mean, I I I I doctor shopped in advance. I had two different scripts filled to two different pharmacies, but I, you know, I I, I blew my load too fast. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I just went through it too. I just to you know so. Yeah, Larry's yeah. Larry's chiming in here. My dad can't go without skull at seven a.m. reading the newspaper. His brother died from it, and he won't acknowledge it. And no. and 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 the lay viewer would be like, okay, so it's you know skull packets of nicotine, no big deal, right? Right. But in all reality, his brother died from it, and he won't acknowledge right. it. Right. And, 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 yeah, and given sufficient reason to quit or or moderate. They do. Right. And certainly having a, you know, a, a sibling die of the exact thing that you're doing would cause would be cause for that. But, you know, so. and I think that's a telltale sign of an addict is if, you know, you're going on vacation and then you bring enough to mm -hmm. what would be if you're doing the math before leaving. Like mm -hmm. I can do three pills a day if I do this, mm -hmm. sparse it out and I'll be fine. And then, you know day two day three you're like i'm gonna take five or six today i know it's gonna hurt me in the end but i'll figure something out it's like you don't the consequences right it's like the consequences don't mean anything when this thing's in front of you and it's like you, you have no choice but to not take it i remember one time it was like you know my big thing was being on as many drugs as possible and then convincing everybody else that i'm not on any drugs and <laughs> You know, my, my mother was um, a, a, a big enabler, you know, and, and me trying to prove to her that I wasn't high so she could give me money to, to continue getting high. And then there was a time when I was like, I had like three, they, they were oxys at the time. And I was like, you know, I have these three, I'm going to take a half at a time, whatever. I end up taking all three and then being with my mom, I'm just like nodding out, standing in her refrigerator, just nodding out, tipping over. And it's just like, I can't help myself. If I, if I have access to this thing, I'm going to do this thing until I'm, you know, literally nodding out, falling on the floor. And, you know, that's the difference between somebody who might take a two, might take one too many or, 
might have a physical addiction to a full blown addict like I am. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, it rules your life. Right. I mean, it's just I mean, and I think back at that trip and how angry my wife was at me on a constant basis. And my daughter was like one years old at the time and she was with us. And, you know, it's just I look back at it and it's just like, you know, what a hot mess. You know, what trauma is being caused for, for all of us? We're all just so disjointed and you know and and that's a big part of of what i do and and dr barry you know this is just the work with the families they're just it just the the disease just permeates through families uh and and you can just see the wreckage like a like falling behind in the wake of the of the addict yeah i mean i i don't think there's any question about that this is definitely a family disease right and and uh, it's been my experience uh, over the last, you know, X number of years that there have been times where the family is actually sicker than the identified patient. And, and I'm sure you've yeah. experienced that, right? So, and as, as recently as last night, I've experienced that. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. and we're going to get into kind of the work you do now and the whole intervention aspect because I find it fascinating. And I, I don't think I've ever had, I mean, I'm a, I'm a doctor of psychology, but I don't never had like a formal interventionist uh, training. So I kind of do it the way I've always done it, which, you know, nine times out of 10 is effective and, and it works, but I know there's some real specifics and, and the family component is obviously a big part of the intervention process. And it's not always done uh, the way it is on TV. Right. Right. Um, right. There's a not, lot you not, don't see on TV. Yeah. There's a lot you don't see on TV. There's a lot of planning that goes on behind the scenes, getting the family prepared, making sure everybody's on board, making sure that the consequences are in place, making sure nobody caves, which I've seen happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and with, with lethal results, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, when when yeah. families cave. Uh, yeah. What, what was your, what was your bottom? You know, what actually led you to sobriety? You know, what, what, what happened? Do you remember that last night? I mean, was it, what was it? Yeah. So, um, it was, um, a couple of days after my daughter's second birthday. So a year later post this European trip and, um, my uh, my wife had gone to the bank to get some money for something, and, and all the all all the money was gone um, because I had just recently been out uh, doctor shopping. Um, and we're not great financial managers to begin with, but you know you had in doctor shopping, and it at the time in two thousand four, and she I mean she called me in the car, and she's like, "I'm done. I'm out. I'm going." And she took my daughter that night and went to her friend's house. And then she left a message for my parents on my dad's voicemail and said, uh, your son's an addict. He's an alcoholic. He's a bad provider. I think my career was completely in the shitter at that point, too. And um, what were you doing at that time career wise? Commercial real estate. Okay. Yeah. Which is a, you know, high risk, high reward business. Um, And, you know, I would have. Sometimes I, you know, we'd have a good deal and it would be, you know, like, oh, this is great. There's no problems. But then you're back down quickly. You're out of money. You're back down at the bottom of the 
you know, there's no consistency. And that's because, you know, the, the end of my using is like you, when you're towards the end, there's a certain amount of using you've got to do just to get up to baseline, just to, just to, just to be operational. And then you're getting high from there. So it's not in the end for me, it wasn't about getting high. It was, was, it was getting using enough to become functional. Um, Yeah. And my wife, my wife left that message for my, my dad. And after she did, she said, they'll, they'll they'll never talk to me again. They're going to hate me. They'll never talk to me again but I have no choice and I'm leaving. And, and my dad called her back 24 hours later and he said, I know that everything you're saying is true. Um, we've, we've been ignoring it and um, you know, we're going to do something. And, and I, I was kind of an easy intervention. My dad uh, called me and I was, again, calls me in the car. I'm always in the car. And, and he says, you know, you got to do something. And I said, I know, I know I got it. And, and I knew I did. I mean, I, I had known from that first time, from that first pill, that that, that day was going to come. And it, and it was almost 10 years, like right to the, right to the day. Um, and so I made my own arrangements to go to treatment. And there was only one treatment center I, I had ever heard of, and that was the Betty Ford Center. And my ego said, well, if I'm going to go to treatment, I'm going to go with the movie stars and I'll go there. And um, so I got there and there were no movie stars. And, you know, it turned out, luckily for me, that the Betty Ford Center, and I know it's changed a lot, but back then when Mrs. Ford was still alive, it was a 12-step immersion program, strong boundaries. Everything was programmed and regimented. And, you know, so there was little wiggle room for a guy like me. You know, there was little room for manipulation. And, and I'm very, very fortunate because had it been what I wanted it to be, mm-hmm. I, I would have left sicker than I showed up. So I got lucky. You know, I got, I, despite myself, I got lucky. And, you know, and a few days later I went um, and, you know, it was, it was a struggle for me the first week or two weeks to, you know, I, I had been, it had been a long time since I had existed, you know, with no, uh, Pills, alcohol, caffeine, sugar, gambling, you know, what, whatever it is I can get my hands on. What, you know, there was a, you know, the primary addictions and then whatever else I can get my hands on to take me out of me. Uh, right. I, I had access to none of that. And that was, that was a tough detox. So. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's one of the hardest things about getting somebody to, to go into treatment. It's like, when you're using, what you're basically doing is controlling your feelings, right? Like, you know, if you take this pill, you're going to feel this way. If you're going to have this drink, you know how you're going to feel. And then you send them somewhere where it's basically saying, you you have to listen to somebody else now. You know, let give somebody else the wheel um, because you're not doing a good job at it right now. You know, right. and for somebody who that's all they're holding on to is a little bit of control. I, I believe that's why you have the interventions, right? So you're the middleman between the family and this person to kind of soften the blow a little bit to, to. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm more of an orchestrator than, than, than anything else. You know, uh, often when families will hire me and they'll say, well, I, I don't know how you're going to get him to go to treatment or her to go to treatment. And, you know, the answer is I'm not, you are, but I'm going to show you how to do that. They don't know me. And, you know, the intervention process is, is, you know, three feet long and the actual intervention itself is five inches long 
right? So I, you know, I'm, we're, we do a lot of family work. We have a, a dedicated parent coach. We do a very significant all day pre-intervention. I'm not meeting the addict till they walk in the room that morning, right? So, you know, I have to build rapport with them very quickly and trust. And uh, so, and, and then I, and then we spend a day together traveling to treatment. And usually that day is a very meaningful day in the fact that we're, you know, we're in the car together talking, we're on the plane together talking, we're having meals, you know, we, so we're, we're stopping at uh, Starbucks a couple of times that day and until I get them admitted into treatment, but I may never see them again after that. Um, you know, they, they may, they, depending if they, if they don't make the transition from external motivation to internal motivation, they may want nothing to do with me because they see me as connected to their family. Um, so really, that's where we focus our, our our work is on the family, and we have this um, this philosophy of addiction that that I use with families all the time. And it's just like addictions, like the elements of fire. There's there's fuel, there's spark, and there's oxygen. The fuel is the drug, the spark is the disease, and the oxygen is the family. Right. So we really just focus on affecting change where we can, and that's with the oxygen with the family. You know, uh, Jason brought up a point, and he was talking about the comfort that's there, knowing how we're going to feel from one minute to the next when we use a drug. And, and I talk about this often, and I think it's important to mention because at the end of the day, when the decision is being made by the family and by the client to actually get help, typically, if we boil everything down and, and take off what we think covers what really lies underneath is fear. Fear. Yeah. It is, it is and ego. fear and ego. Yeah. Com complete and total fear. Okay. Yeah. And I remember the comfort that exists in knowing exactly how I'm going to feel from one minute to the next. And I would look forward to that feeling and I would ruin relationships to get that feeling. Sure. And the scariest thing about being in early recovery is not knowing how you're going to feel from one minute to the next. And then to top it off, feeling bad and not being able to just change it at a moment's notice. Right. And, and, you, and you know what would, what does the trick, but you just don't have access to that. Right. And, and so you're left to, okay, I don't feel good. They tell me I'm going to start feeling better, but they can't tell me when. And now I have to trust, but it still doesn't feel good. And and addicts in general. Now, listen, every human being in this world just wants to feel better. Okay. Right. There, there's not a human being who wakes up every single day and says, I really hope I have a day where I feel terrible. You know, right. I hope I have a day where I can feel worse as the day goes on. So yeah. it, this is not an addiction thing. This is a human thing. We like to feel good. Most anybody in this world likes to feel good. The issue with people who are afflicted with this disease that take feeling good into their own hands mm -hmm. is that feeling good becomes a liability. Okay. Well, it's a very, very good way to say it. I like that, we'll, we'll, we'll call it for what it is. Now, yeah, sure. there, there, there are what we refer to as normies. Okay. Those mm -hmm. are people that can go to happy hour order a drink, take a few sips, put it down at the bar, and forget it's there. Mm -hmm. Okay? 
there are people in this world that on New Year's Eve can get mm -hmm. a gram of cocaine, mm -hmm. spend time with four of their friends, party all night, and still have a half a gram for next year and stick it in their drawer and not think about it for what? the next 364 <laughs> yeah. days. I don't Jason, know any of those people, but yeah. I, I, that's, yeah. Those people uh, do exist, okay? Yeah. yeah. There are people who mm. can manage and socially use a substance that makes them feel good and they don't spend the rest of their fucking life chasing that feeling until they're emaciated and dying, okay? Right. So, so when we look at, you know, this population as a whole, when we talk about addiction and we talk about feeling good, yes, the two things run hand in hand, but what we have to instill in the people that we're intervening on and the people who are new in recovery is that it is possible to feel better than you've ever felt, but you have to give yourself enough time to get there and the road's going to be a little bumpy. The yeah. good news is though, you're not going to die from the bumpiness. You're not going to die because you don't feel good. Right. The better news is just because you feel a certain way right now in 10 minutes, you could be feeling something different and it might be a little bit better, you know? So anyways, that's a, that's a little Dr. Barry tangent. So uh, let me great. ask you, Mark. Well, absolutely what, on point. Yeah. Let, let me ask you, Mark, what, what or when did you make the transition from, real estate, which is a completely separate field to, Hey, I think I want to risk everything right now and put all my eggs in one basket and go and be an interventionist. So I originally started, you know, doing the work to get the certifications and the trainings in 2014, but it wasn't until 2018 where I, I made that transition. And, and to be perfectly honest with you, that transition was the result of a uh, a spiritual crisis. Uh, we we had we were living in Washington D.C. Um, I really wanted to get out of commercial real estate. It hadn't been productive enough for me. People who had my tenure in the business were doing much better than I was doing. It was just time for me to get out, and we had the opportunity to move to South Florida. And and I and I and I was sober enough to know that it was a geographic. So, you know, and I knew that it would be good because it's novelty, then bad, then it eventually would be okay. And we moved down here. And the first thing I do is take a job in commercial real estate. It's like, if you don't tie the horse up, they run back into the fire, into the burning barn. And, and the day I walk into that job, I say, what the fuck am I doing here? I, I have no intention of doing anything they've hired me to do or, or honoring the contract that they that I've I've agreed to. And and very quickly I started going to a place of, you know, if I don't get out of here, I swear to God, I'm gonna kill myself. And and I would I would I would work out a lot. That was like my saving grace. I'd go to meetings and I was and I would go to the gym every day. And I'd be in the shower after a workout and I, and I would I would just like let the water hit me and I would and I would think to myself, well, you know, well, here are the rules. I can't drink, I can't have an affair, and I can't hurt myself. So besides that, let's, you know, go figure this out. Um, and it was actually one night, it was really, again, affecting my relationship with my wife. Her career was going very well. It was affecting my self-esteem. You know, I'm, I'm definitely somebody who needs purpose and meaning in their life. I need to know what we're, where we're going, what we're doing. There's got to be, there's, there's got to be something we're working towards. 
Um, and my wife was out of town with her, her mom and her brothers celebrating her mom's birthday. And my then 15 year old daughter was sitting and I were sitting at the kitchen table and she looks up at me out of nowhere and says, dad, why don't you start doing interventions again? And I was like, holy shit, it was a holy shit moment. Like, yeah, oh my God, yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. And it was like the weight of the world fell off my shoulders. You know, it was like the most, it was like such a simple solution. Um, and when I started this, you know, I started, you know, kind of drafting out what, what my, what our philosophy and everything would look like that weekend, started working on the website. And, um, you know, I, 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 you know, more than anything, I wanted purpose and meaning in my life. Um, and, and this is really delivered on that. And I've worked harder than I've ever worked uh, at any other, any, anything else, but the reward is, is so great uh, doing this and seeing families get healed and seeing people get the help they need. And so, yeah. So I think that's you went out on a limb, you took a risk, you left your comfort zone. And I don't know why that's still happening, but then it stops after like a 10 seconds. Um, you went out on a limb, you took a risk, you got out of your comfort zone, you followed your dream. I'm sure that there's a lot of people who are listening right now that um, that just brings about a fear response for them. You know, there's people who are, sure. are in jobs that have jobs that are paying the bills. They're just not fulfilled. Yeah. And yeah. not everybody has, you know, sorry for my language, but the balls to uproot what they've done. And, and you, you've had a legitimate career in commercial real estate. I'm assuming when you and your family moved from DC to Florida, because you were in commercial real estate, the first few years, you guys lived in a warehouse. Would that be right? Uh, uh, well, you know, I've always been fortunate and, and again, and I don't, I don't want to credit myself uh, with, you know, too much. I think in the back of my head, I, I knew that I had some good enablers in my life and some good codependents. Um, and that, um, in you know, case but you I, know. yeah, I don't think they were going to let us be homeless. Um, and my wife's career was, cause she's always been a, a good, she's always had a good career, but she was very, she was, uh, you know, I think people were, had been through with me, you know, the point, point before I got sober where I was getting hot, getting, getting jobs, quitting them, getting fired, um, you know, just, just not able to. To, to hold down anything. And, um, you know, so I think that there was a sense for people like, you know, like this is, you know, I'm not someone with, I wasn't someone with a phenomenal track record of, you know, it's not like I just egg, did a successful exit, you know, um, and was getting into my next venture. It was like, you know, I was definitely someone who was at a turning point in my life. And I think people were looking at me going, you know, I hope this works. I hope this, I hope this works. And, um, you know, so, I mean, it was, it was a chance, but, but I, I, I just want to say, I consider myself a very fortunate person, um, uh, that it's not, hasn't, it's not all me, you know, it's, it's the people around me. Um, it's, it's, it's the love I have. It, it's, I think it, as, you know, to say it's all me would be wrong. It's not, it's not it's your, your supporting cat. Right. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah. Okay. So you, you got into this intervention stuff. Can you share just with the audience, 
you know, what typically goes into an intervention for you, your style, what normally, what does it normally look like? So, you know, a, a big part of interventions are being organized, which is interesting because there was a lot of the tools I had from my commercial real estate career that carried over to this, you know, uh, or you're keeping it state organization, managing expectations, managing, you know, getting people in line. And so like the first thing we do is we decide the one and the where, you know, when are we, you know, where's the person going to go to treatment? So we find treatment first, then we decide, then we put a two days on the calendar, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, doesn't matter. Um, and then, you know, in leading up to the pre-intervention, I, I email uh, things to, 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 I get, I, first thing I email to the family is, is a part, uh, a participants list. So they give, I have the names and everything. So I'm able to create, you know, organize a, a, a single mailing list. And then I email to the family, you know, a, 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 a guide for writing impact letters, uh, a documentary I want them to watch before that, you know, then, you know, and I, and I give it to families a little piece at a time. So, so we, so we get there in a nice organized fashion and, um, you know, we get to the pre-intervention, which I said is a, a a pretty extensive day. And we're talking about boundaries. We're talking about fear. We're talking about, you know, we, we are reading the impact letters. That much is true. Um, we're, we're trying to weed out anyone in the group who is not on board or, or is the weak link or just doesn't believe this can happen. And by the time there's a big change at the end of the day, by the time we get to the end of the day and the last thing we do at the pre-intervention is we talk about logistics and we're going to which is usually we're going to meet at a parking lot nearby everybody's going to be there at 7 or seven thirty, and then we're going to caravan over together we just we talk about how you know how are we going to sit in the room where we're going to leave a space for the attic we you know, all these things we talk about what, what we're going to do if they get escalated if they yell if they scream if they lock themselves in the, cl- in the bathroom or the closet or whatever you know, what is our response and how do we do that? Um, and the point is, the more preparation we do, the better off, the better better the intervention is. And typically they go pretty quickly in the morning and I get the personnel and get them in the car to the airport and away from the family. Um, and, that, and then that's when Kelly comes in and she, she starts working with the family um, about, you know, long-term change, holding balance, setting boundaries, holding boundaries, things like that. So what I can imagine the TV show intervention um, probably makes everybody think that they're an armchair interventionist, you know, um, right. like I'm, all you have to do is sit the person down and give them an ultimatum. Right. So what, right. what are some of the dangers of somebody trying to do this themselves without consulting a professional? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, um, if you know, we're we're no good when it comes to our own kids. Uh, and our own loved ones. And, you know, you, we're, we're emotional and we are hardwired to save our children. So when they become uncomfortable, we, we automatically want to rush in and save them. And that's not a bad thing. It's just human nature. It's the way, you know, it's the way we are. Um, not having the, uh, you know, a danger could be issuing consequences. You, you have no ability or no intention of carrying through. I mean, if you're if we're intervening on on a guy and the wife says, "I'm I'm gonna, I'm leaving. I'm packing the bags. I'm leaving. I'm getting divorced." 
but she doesn't have her own career or a career that supports that or a family system that supports that. She's not leaving, right? And and then and then you've just shown that everything is is for naught. Um, you know, one of the things that we work on, one of the dangers is helping the getting the family to not take the bait because the addict is gonna be, you know, let me do let me grab here, let me let me try all my they're gonna run through all their tactics. I hate you, you're a shitty parent. You never loved me. You know, everything they can, you know, this is an ambush. It's not fair to me. If you, big one, if you had just had a conversation with me, I, I would have went. We didn't have to do all this. The truth is, by the time people get to me and is that they've been trying to have that conversation with their loved one for years and haven't been able to. Um, you know, the show intervention, I do want to point out one thing. I, I don't know what goes on. I, I've never been on the show. I don't know what happens. I'm just saying what I know from the show is that they do in the beginning of the show say the person they're intervening on has agreed to be in a documentary about addiction. So obviously that person is somewhat of a willing participant. They acknowledge their addiction and, you know, and then we don't know what kind of work they're doing. They could have five uh, sober coaches or therapists working with the family to get to that one point that you don't see. Like I said, the intervention is uh, three feet long and the, and the actual intervention that day is five inches long. It's, it is an important piece, but it is only a piece of the greater process. I think what Jason brought up is there are people who may not be quote-unquote qualified to do an intervention and i don't think he was referring to you know mom and dad trying to intervene on her own son and daughter but more so the dangers of you know we're taught in na and aa to you know go on 12-step calls right and what's a 12-step call at the end of the day that's really an intervention it's taking somebody who's in the grips and trying to pull them out and getting them back into recovery um you know how important is yeah. the training that you've gone through to get to the point where you're at today, like, where would you be? I think we all innately feel like, at least if we've been in the field for a long time, that we have the ability to sit down and talk with someone and try to give the best advice possible and get them to commit to changing their life. But, you know, what is the difference between that lay person who mm. maybe has been in recovery for 10 plus years versus the person who's gone through some extensive training? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the uh, the answer is, you know, there's the training, but there's also the experience. You know, um, I, I, I've been through many, many interventions, so I, I don't respond the same way uh, uh, someone does. You know, a lot of times somebody comes into an intervention, for example, and the first thing out of their mouth is, I'm not going to treatment. You, vet, you know, they, they start they start laying down the you know, what is dictating the terms of their, of what's going on, right? And someone without experience might be, be flustered at that and, and that's the end of the intervention. And all of a sudden the, the, uh, the addict is running the show again, right? The, this, the script has been flipped. But, you know, I, I prepare families that, you know, when, when your son or daughter or your husband walks in and they yell at us, right, which happens a lot less than people think, they, the expectation is that they're going to be go through the roof. And most of the time that does not happen. 
right? But I, I tell them that if they walk in and they start with fuck you and blah, blah, I said, say to yourself, this is exactly what we knew was going to happen. And this is right on schedule. And, you know, so we move past it. That's the experience. We just keep moving past objections. We don't, you know, we're not there for a negotiation. Um, so the training's important. I think the experience is important. And I think what's also very important is finding your own voice and your own process that works for you as, as a professional. But that's with therapists or anybody too, so. And what about who is physically dependent on opiates, alcohol, benzo, something that it might not only be uncomfortable for them, but it could be life-threatening. How, how is that managed? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, I've definitely had those. Most people that I transport are, they're pretty functional. Um, so it's not an issue, but I have had um, people that are really intoxicated. I had a, a, you know, a young doctor once, a female doctor, but I, but she was small and I was able to like get her on the plane and she was, they gave us our own row and she was fine. And we got a couple of drinks. She was fine. Um, but you know, I've also had bigger guys and then they start getting, uh, loud in the terminal. And, and nowadays with everything going on, you'll have a gate agent come over to you and be, what's going on here. We're not going to let you board the plane. So you're trying to keep that person calm. And I've also had interventions where I, I, I go in and I said, this person can't travel. You know, they need to go to detox first. They're not physically able. Um, there's just no way. And they have to detox. And then we and then we transport them to, to treatment. Um, but yeah, that is scary, right? Because, you know, I'll ask uh, clients, do you have drugs on you or what's going on? And they'll, be, they'll always say no. But then it turns out later when they're searched, they had heroin or they had, you know, Xanax bars on them. Um, it's risky. I mean, you always got to carry um, uh, um, uh, the uh, Narcan. Narcan, thank you. Yeah, you always have, you should always carry Narcan. And um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's a risk there, but there's also, there's a greater risk in um, doing nothing, right? Right. You know, I, 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 had a, I had a kid recently we picked up in Ohio out of school. We, we actually found him in his car in the parking lot as we pulled up, just, you know, smoking a bowl. And um, we couldn't get any direct flights out to Salt Lake City that night. So I flew with him to Atlanta and we stayed overnight there. And the reason is, had we overnighted in uh, Cincinnati where, where we were, you know, he would be close to his his stomping ground, his university. And I didn't want him calling Fat Charlie or Big Joe to come pick him up and I'm feeling better. And then, you know, all of a sudden we're like, what happened? I wanted to get him to a place where he's not he's not walking out the door so easily. So we all do right. things like that, little techniques like that. Put you on the spot. Go ahead. I don't know if you have this data or statistics. But I'm sure you get asked this, especially when somebody's forking over thousands of dollars to do an intervention. What's your success rate, Mark? It's very, it's very good. Um, it, it, mo, mo, what I tell families is most people go at the intervention. Um, can what I say it's. I've had intervention, you know, I've naturally had interventions where the person won't go. And, you know, and I'll tell you why, why that is. 
you know, um, we had one about six months ago where a mother had hired us and, and we had a great pre-intervention, great family. And we walked in and I knew that I looked at the kid and knew he wasn't going. He wasn't sick enough. You know, he was 26 years old. He was a gambler, some cocaine, some party, but he was still in good shape. He was working out every day. His hair looked good. He was still getting girls. And, you know, in his mind, and I said to him, I said, I, I know that I said, you're exactly where I was at 26. You, you just think that if I you know, can make enough money, all my problems will go away. And he was like, yeah, I, I don't have a problem. I'm, 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 I'm good. Um, and, and, I, and the family had very little leverage. Uh, he had his own apartment. Uh, the mother had paid off his car, all those things. And the family was not willing to implement harsher consequences. There was, there was a level. And, and I actually think that there was some relief on the mom's part when the kid didn't go. But yeah, we've, we've had a couple of tough cases like that. The, you know, today, the kids today are a lot more uh, emboldened and brazen than when we were. I mean, I think if I had told my father, F you, I'm not going to treatment, I would, he would have put me through the wall. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that was, I mean, and, and today he would still do that and he's 80 years old, you know, but a lot of kids today, they just don't have, they don't have the respect. They're not afraid of their parents. There's not that, but that leverage doesn't exist. And, and a lot of kids uh, have groomed their parents to behave, to not intervene. I think yeah. uh, I, I, I remember looking back um, I remember being intervened on. I mean, I remember the the night, the setting. It was June nineteenth, nineteen ninety six, which is my clean day today. Okay, and I remember uh, I was walking into my psychologist's office. You know, I was doing the individual therapy thing as kind of mm -hmm. a you know just to appease my family. I was twenty years old, and um, I got into my psychologist's office, and in the waiting room. Uh, both of my parents and my sister were sitting in there, which was not normal. And, and you know, we got taken into the doctor's office and they basically had me at hello. I just, I knew the gig was up. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a relief that, that came about me. I remember that feeling of, you know, opening my hands and kind of just waving the white flag and saying, I'm, I'm going to try this because mm -hmm. I knew the way I was living wasn't working. But when you encounter a, a client like you were just describing who has it going on, I mean, I was, I'm six, three, I was 140 pounds soaking wet, having yeah. grand mal seizures in and out of hospitals. Like my, I did not look good. My hair didn't look good. I wasn't in the gym. I wasn't in shape. You know, my, yeah. my life was literally falling apart. Yeah. I didn't want to stop using, right. We, we don't ever want to not feel good. We talked about this before, yeah. but I got to that place where I said, you know, I'm going to give this thing a shot. So, you know, I think that open-mindedness, at least having the open-mindedness is crucial. And, and there have been interventions that I've been a part of where I walk in and I'm thinking in my head, this person doesn't need an intervention. Not yet. You know, mm -hmm. this person might not even be an addict. It's the family that really needs right, to Right, right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. sure you encounter that kind of stuff. We are running up close to the end of the hour. Yeah. I just want to talk real quick about your book. Um, yeah. Not everybody can proclaim that they're an author. 
And so yeah. I think that's, that's a really big deal. I'm sure Greg, our producer, will, will put something up, you know, about your book. But if you just want to give a plug real quick about your book, where people can find it, um, and then it, it, is it taking business away from you since you're actually giving a guide to intervention? You know, I think most people. I give the book to families that hire I me. Mean, I give the book out to people, um, you know, that inquire, and I and I think the book does a very good job of you know, helping the family understand my philosophy of intervention and, and what they can expect to, to go through um, and, and some of the things they're going to see in an intervention. Um, it really uh, hasn't taken business away from me, though I, I did get a call recently from a family and they said that, you know, they had bought my book and they were going to try it themselves. And I said, I said oh, you know, go, go for it. And you know, <laughs> have fun. Uh, I don't know what the result of that was, but listen, I go to I go to some really good restaurants yeah. and try some really good dishes. And there's yeah. going to be times where I get a bug up my ass and want to come home and actually try to cook what I just ate. Yeah, but I'm yeah. always going back to their restaurant because my cooking sucks. So. Well, you know, my wife and I talk about this a lot because she's produced a lot of intellectual uh, property for her business. And clients ask her for it. She's always reluctant. And I say to her, you know, just because you give a man a scalpel does not make him a surgeon. I said, give, give him the material. It doesn't matter. They can't do what you're, you do anyway with the, the way you put it together and present it and bring everybody into the, yeah. So. Well, this is, this is awesome. You know, um, I can't, I can't leave rhyme and reason without at least telling one dumb joke. Um, so knock, knock. Who's there? Amish. Amish. You do not look like a shoe. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> and, and it's so hard to come by a good joke you can tell like to a three-year-old. Yes. Yeah. These are all these are all kid friendly. Okay. Yeah. Did you hear the two peanuts were walking down the street? Uh-huh. One was assaulted. <sighs> oh. Poor peanut. <laughs> I want to thank I want to thank Jason for coming on last minute. Um, you know, for for you know filling in for Zach, who was out this week. Again, you can catch Jason every Thursday night at eight o'clock Eastern um, on these same platforms on Toxicology's podcast. Um, Mark, I want to thank you for coming on. Also, on pretty short notice, uh, I got you over the weekend. I think you were traveling and and. Uh, Really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to another Cuban lunch with you, which I think I turned yeah. you on to that restaurant. Oh, yeah, because we've since gone back there. My wife loved it. My daughter loved it. This was great. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. And um, thank you, Jason, for coming on. And yeah, I hope we can do this again. I, I, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Mark. Thanks. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.